The following is a message of First Baptist Richardson. For more information, please visit fbcr.org. Well, Andy, thank you, choir orchestra. Always a blessing. And, uh, you know, last time I was here with you, I uh, preached in the other room. And uh, what I love about coming to church here is that whichever room you're in, it's worshipful. And the worshipful music, great leadership, uh, excellence. Andy, you always do things with excellence, brother, and I appreciate that, but also filling of God's spirits. Great to be back with you. And Andy mentioned I've been on a trip down the Nile River. My wife saw the movie Death on the Nile and said, I want to go there. And then she looked at me kind of awkwardly. Uh, and uh, uh, so uh, gratefully, it wasn't my death she was looking out for, okay? But uh, we had a great time, but it's always good to be back in America. I can promise you that. But open your Bibles with me today. We're going to be, as you're going through the book of Acts, I love what you're doing, uh, going through this book. Uh, by the way, I actually was an interim part of a church down in Humble, Texas, which we did exactly the same thing, worked our way through the book of Acts. And I know you've been reading Acts 21 this week. Now, as you read, uh, the book of Acts, as you know, is not so much a doctrinal book as it's a historical book. Uh, Luke, who wrote Luke Acts, one of the greatest historians of his day, the accuracy, the accuracy of the book of Acts in the book of Luke is just off the page exact. And been a lot of discussions about things about Luke and what he said and what he talked about in the book of Acts. And yet every archaeological discovery further proves uh, the historicity of this incredible book. But in, in dealing with history, what you have in the book of Acts is the formation of the church. And uh, God just didn't give them a plan uh, to be candid with you. They made it up as they went along. I I like what one person said about it. Uh, The early church was like building a plane as you flew it, okay? And that's the way they were. They were constantly encountering things and different situations, different circumstances. And so what we have in this this, uh, chapter... It's Paul going about establishing and strengthening churches. Now, by the way, that hasn't stopped. I work for the North American Mission Board, and here in a few days you'll be giving to an Annie Armstrong offering. I want you to know it's still for planting churches. Last year, uh, Southern Baptists planted over 600 new churches in North America. In the last 12 years, you have helped plant over 10,000 new churches around the country in places like San Diego and Las Vegas and Seattle and Detroit, these tough-to-reach cities, uh, planting churches. That's what we're about. It's what the New Testament was about. It. That's what we're about. But I would admit to you that when you preach out of a section of Scripture like this, and all you're doing is following a person, uh, sometimes it's a, a little bit challenging for preaching material. Because you begin to look at this, and all you're basically doing is seeing Paul go about his business. And much of the book of Acts is just like that. We are just watching somebody live out their calling, their life, the gospel. And that's what you have out of the book of Acts. But in looking at this chapter, and looking at his life, it made me remember something in my life. While I have a couple of seminary degrees and a and hundred years of preaching in churches and books in the library and all those kind of things, I think about my life, that the things I have learned the best that has gone down deep in my soul, not so much books I've read or even sermons I've heard, but is people that I've watched and observed them living out life in their circumstances. In fact, the, probably the primary person 
in my ministry and life as my mentor, uh, the one who uh, helped shape my life, a man by the name of Damon Shook, a uh, former pastor there at Jared Stevens Church in Champion Forest. And uh, Damon Shook was my pastor back in Arkansas and uh, uh, helped lead me to Christ, gave me my first staff position after I'd been a believer only a year. And, and uh, throughout my life, as I look back, as I look back, the primary influence, without a doubt, was watching Damon Shook watching him raise those godly kids and the credible ministry and the way he confronted life and circumstances and situations. And so I went back to the 21st chapter and said, okay, Lord, we're watching Paul live out his life. What can we learn about him living out his life? What can we learn as he faced doctrinal issues, as he moved from place to place, as he encountered people in disputes and disagreements, and people were constantly battling over doctrinal issues and practical issues. And yet we get to watch Paul live his life through that. And out of that, we can learn some principles about his life. Some things I believe that are not just principles for 2,000 years ago. Principles that we, you and I need to live out in the early church, in our church today, in this place, in the life we live, in the place we're in, and, and learn some things from his life. And so what I'm going to do today is I'm just going to work through the first uh, about uh, 25 verses of this chapter, and we're going to just draw some things out of his life and see if we can learn some things about how God would have us to live, all right? And the very first principle is you examine Paul and you see the courage of his convictions, that this was a man of great courage. Now, this wasn't a man who was obnoxious about his convictions. This was just simply a man, when God settled something in his soul, he said, courageously, I'm going to stay with this. Look at chapter 21. We'll begin reading. And when they parted from that place and set sail, they came to, of course, to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and there to Patera, Having found a ship uh, from, from uh, crossing to Phoenicia, they came inside of Cyprus, and, and then they went to sail for Syria, landed at Tyre, and unloaded some cargo, and sought out disciples. Look at verse 4. And having sought out disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And when the, our days there were ended, we departed. And went on our journey, and with all, with the wives, children, we all gathered together outside the city, kneeling down on that beach together, they prayed, and said farewell to one another, and we boarded the ship and returned home. And then we finished the voyage from Tyre, went to Ptolemias, and we greeted the brothers. We stayed there with them for the day. The next day to Caesarea, we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, when one of the, one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying there, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his hands and his feet, and says, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owned this belt. Deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when they heard this, the people urged him not to go to Jerusalem. <clears throat> then Paul answered, well, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And he said, let the will of the Lord be done. And after many days, they got ready and he went up to Jerusalem. 
And some of the disciples of Cesare, from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nansen of Cyprus, an early disciple of whom we should lodge. What do you see in this? You, you see someone who has heard from God about his life. Someone who has come to the place of conviction. This is what God wants for me. And what you see is even godly people were trying to keep him from that. Even the folks around him were telling him not to go. And things were stirring up in Jerusalem. And the world around him was, was, was filled with great tension. And yet, the Apostle Paul knew God wanted him to go to Jerusalem. Now, by the way, just a little parenthesis right here. I was here with you last time we were, uh, were in the 18th chapter. Do you remember in the 18th chapter when he first moved to Corinth, who did he stay with? He stayed with Priscilla and Aquila. They were from Pontus. That was northern Turkey. But it says about them, they had been in Rome. And in Rome, they'd been cast out and they couldn't stay there any longer. I'm convinced. Now, this is just a personal thought of mine, conviction. I don't have any biblical justification for this. But I believe when Paul was in their home, he was listening to them tell about the great city of Rome. And I would say to you that I don't believe his ultimate goal was Jerusalem. I believe his ultimate goal was to go to Rome and to take the gospel. And he understood the only way he would get the right platform for that was to first go to Jerusalem. And you see this man with conviction about what he ought to do and about what he ought to be. And as people tried to knock him off stride, you see that, that people couldn't knock him off stride. But another thing about conviction is Paul said, you know something? I'm willing. If I go die in Jerusalem, so be it. Because I know that fulfilling the will of God Standing upon the convictions of what God would be saying to me would be more important than anything I could ever do with my life. And so what we see in this man is somebody, not that he just heard a sermon somewhere, or he read a book, or got an idea, or listened to somebody else talk about something and just happened chance wanted to go somewhere. This was a man who had a lifestyle of listening to God. This was a man who just didn't let his coming to church once a week be the entirety of his spiritual life. This was a man who understood that if you're going to be a person of conviction, you're not just going to get it in one hour in a Bible study or one hour possibly in a church service. This has to be something that is a lifestyle of walking with God and hearing from God and knowing that God has settled that and it didn't come from somebody else. It was something God said, this is what I want you to do for your life. I'm afraid the reason why. We oftentimes are so wishy-washy about our walk with God. Is our walk with God is not a lifestyle. It's an event. It's going to church, sing in the choir, go to a Bible study, participate in a mission event. That's not what you see with the Apostle Paul. You see, this man was someone that God spoke to on a daily basis. Because God spoke to him daily, hour by hour, moment by moment. God was continually using all the circumstances to build in his life deep conviction about what God wanted for him. And I'd say to you today, you and I are not going to be strong people of conviction. If our relationship with God is just a moment we put in our life, it's going to happen out of something God does over many years of learning to walk with him day by day, circumstance by circumstance, living in his word, learning how to spend time in prayer. You see, that's what it takes to have the courage of conviction. 
It causes us to be able to look at the world and even people close to us, even people within the church, and say, you know something, you and I may disagree, but this is what God has placed within my soul. And I can't do anything else but live by that, even if it costs me my life. I saw this illustrated in my own life through my brother-in-law, Rod Bryant, who's one of my good buddies and a hero of mine. Rod is a graduate of the Naval Academy in Annapolis, and, and as a guy who had a career in the Navy. And uh, in the Navy, he became a supply officer because that could keep him more in the United States where he could more have a family rather than doing uh, uh, cruises all around the world. But Rod came to the end of his career, and he wanted to get in his 20 years so he could retire and then finish. But they required of him to do one more deployment. And so he got on an Aegis cruiser down off of Fort Lauderdale and uh, Jacksonville, and he was on one of those cruisers as supply officer. And one day the captain came to talk to him because Rod was third in command on the ship. And the captain said to him, Rod, I've got some problem with you. He said, the other men, when we go into ports, they go out and have some fun and do a lot of fun things. And, and, and he said, you don't do that. He said, if you're going to be a part of a team, you've got to be a part of these kind of activities so you can build relationships with those guys. And Rod said, well, you know, sir, I want you to know I greatly respect your authority. But you know, the places they go, I don't think that's where a family man ought to go. Things some of them do and the drinking and all that goes on there. He said, that's not who I am. He said, the captain looked at him and says, you know something, right? I hold your career in my hand. If you don't get a good recommendation out of this deployment, you don't get to finish your career. And you need to know doing what I want you to do in this where very well could affect whether you could even finish. And Rod looked at him and said, you know, sir, I'm going to be the best supply officer you've ever had. But if it requires doing that, I've got to just respectfully tell you I can't do it. He said, okay, come what may. Six months finished that deployment and Rod came in for his final evaluation. That man looked at him and said, you know, Rod, didn't understand what you were saying when you did that. But he said, I want to tell you something. You've been the best supply officer I've ever had. I'm not only going to give you a recommendation, I'm going to give you the highest recommendation because I saw you as a man of character, man of conviction. And I want you to know I'm going to recommend you. And he finished out, got to finish his career at the Naval Academy, a chief financial officer, a great finish. Now, I want you to know, it doesn't always turn out that way when you stand for the Lord. There's lots of people who have stood for the Lord who have lost positions and lost wealth and even lost their lives physically. But what brought that about? It was a lifestyle with Rod Bryan and Lee, of building Jesus into the center of their home. And so when he faced that issue, he was able to say, like the Apostle Paul, come what may, I'd rather lose my career than disobey God. And I want you to know what we glean from the Apostle Paul is a man who was able to hear from God, be able to do what God would have him to do, and have the courage to be the man God wanted him to be in the future. But then there's a second thing I see out of this. And this is something I think you hear about in church often, But I think it's incredible that we see it in the Apostle Paul's life. He was a man who continually saw the need of communion with God's people. Continually saw the need of communion with God's people. Let's read on here. When he'd come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James and the elders. 
And after greeting them, they related to one another the things God had done among the Gentiles through the ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God and they said, my goodness, you see, brother, how many thousands who are among the Jews who have come to believe? And they were all zealous for the law and they've been told about all that you've done to teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to, to forsake Moses and, and, and they're telling them not to be circumcised or walk according. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. If you were to go back to those other verses, Paul stopped and gathered with the church. He went to a place and gathered with the church. You see, when you look at Paul's life, there was, a, there was, there was an ongoing uh, principle operating in him. He felt his life was to be lived by encouraging others and let others encourage him. You're not talking about a lone wolf. You're not talking about a guy who said, I don't need anybody else. You're talking about a guy, a guy who understood that not only do other people need me because I'm here to encourage them. I want you to know I need others. And you, you follow his life through the book of Acts. I'd encourage you to see every place he went, he got with people, got with the believers and allowed himself to pour into their lives and allowed them to pour back into his life. I think it's a principle we find in the book of Hebrews. In the book of Hebrews, it talks about this. It, it said, listen, let us draw near with a heart filled of assurance, with our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, but also let us hold fast to our confession. In other words, let's be strong without wavering. Let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. What does the Bible say right here? The Bible says that our gatherings are not just so we can hear a great choir, not just so we can hear about the events of the church, and not so we can have a snack or a great cup of coffee. We come together with a purpose, a mutual purpose. I'm here to encourage you. You're here to encourage me. Therefore, when you and I decide not to go, guess what happens? We don't get encouraged. And the people God expected us to encourage don't get encouraged. Is it any wonder? Is it any wonder that our Christian world today lives without conviction, lives without strength, is dropping out of church in droves today? It's because they don't sense what ought to be happening in the church. It is a place of encouragement, a place where God puts encourage in us, place where God strengthens us, a place where God builds communion. Well, as you look at Paul, you, you realize this great missionary, this great man of God, what did he say? I see the need of a relationship with others, and I see what God wants to do in that relationship with me. I, I'm afraid what we have done is kind of decide church is a place we go and observe place where you go and listen, a place we go and hear, rather than a communion of believers that have a responsibility to one another, to encourage one another, to lift one another up. And when we just live isolated, guess what? We not only miss something, but the rest of the church misses something. You examine Paul's life, you see this guy that he constantly realized how important communion was, relationship was. And so this was a man who constantly got his life involved with other people and, and, and lived it in a way that, that was so incredible. 
let me maybe just draw out of my own life. I'm going to kind of give you a testimony right now, if you can just bear with me. As you know, I pastored a church for quite a few years, Field of Road, 25 years down there. They endured me, okay? And and, uh, a church had quite a few staff, probably 30, 40 staff members. And, uh, you know, it was a pretty big place. And, And I want you to know, I had lots of friends within the church, People I'd eat lunch with, people I'd go play golf with, people I'd vacation with. And, and certainly, I felt like I certainly had communion within that church. Well, Bill, our church decided, uh, our staff decided that we had outgrown our facilities and we weren't going to build anymore. And so we would move towards some off-campus groups to supplement that as much as anything, a building decision, because we weren't going to build buildings anymore for just one event a week. And, and so we began to move into off-campus groups, and it went relatively well in the very beginning. And it's something strategically we needed to do. And then I'll never forget, at a staff meeting one day, the staff looked at me and said, you know, Gary, you have this vision for us to do this, and you've instructed us to build these community groups. And things like on-campus Bible studies and off-campus Bible studies and the groups to create this communion. But they said, until you do it, why does anybody think they would need to do it? Well, I have to admit to you, it made me mad. I said, well, wait a minute here. I've got lots of fellowship. I fellowship with you guys. My staff is my friend. We get together. And they said, no, no, no. You don't have a regular group of community. I said, wait a minute, I'm pastor. <laughs> that means I don't have to do all this other stuff, okay? I just instruct everybody else to. And they said to me, until you do it, it ain't going to work. So I went home to see Sandy, and Sandy taught large ladies Bible study class, and I announced her, saying, guess what? We're going to start a home group. She said, you're going to do what? <laughs> she said, I've got my sister here. I've got my family here. I've got them. I said, no. And I explained her the process. And uh, she said, yeah. So we decided we would start a community group at our house. And I admit to you, Bill, I wasn't real happy about it. Okay. So I recruited about 10 or 12 people. Once you come to the pastor's house, you know, have a little snack together, have a little Bible. Study. I want you to know first three, four months, you know, I don't know anybody got anything out of it. I want you to know it was a, I felt like I was putting my wife out to do it. And so then one day in our group, one of our men shared a story about what was happening in his family and with his father. And we sat there as a group and listened to Joe tell his story about his dad and his mom. And I want you to know, we, it just broke our heart. And I thought about the fact, you know, wait a minute. Where do people in the church have a place where they can sit down with a small group of people who love them, share their need, share their feelings? Oh, we do that with the staff. We come to the staff and tell them. We expect the staff to do something about it. But you know something? In a church this size, you can't hire enough staff to do all that. And so I left that group saying, you know, Lord, this is what's going on here. It's not a Bible study so much. This is a place where a group of people can have communion and relationship. And then I began to realize that, that I wasn't the best leader for it. So I actually picked a couple out of the group to lead the group. And Sandy and I would attend the group. I want you to know that was about eight years ago. Nine years ago. 
Do you know that I'm still in my community group? To tell you the truth, I, I'd miss church before I'd miss that group. There's now 21 of us in that room. I can walk around that room and I can tell you everybody's grandkids. I can tell you what they did for a living. I can tell you where they had an illness. I can tell you who's a widow or a widower. We got four of those within our group. I can tell about Sharon's brother being a pastor down in South Texas and he's got cancer. I talk about Georgiana and, and, and tonsil cancer in her life and what she's been through as we have taken meals to her. And we now have projects we do as a group and we meet as a community group. And they're in that community group. When I have a need, I don't call the staff. I call my communion, my group. And I know there's a group of people that are loving me, ministering to me, not as the pastor of the church, but as an individual that needs communion. And let me just be candid as I can be with you. If all you get out of church is this great choir, the preaching you're going to get out of a preacher, and a few Bible studies around there, you are just living on the surface. You have missed the purpose of God's church. It is a place of communion. And we can't have communion in a room this size where we get communions within a group of people who know each other and love each other. Within our group, we've had to discipline parts of members of the group. We even had a member of our group go to prison for embezzlement. We ministered to him, helped set him back up when he got out of prison, helped him put his life back together, see where he's going. What are we doing? We're doing community. And the Apostle Paul said, you know something? I need communion. And I'm going to seek it out. Shouldn't it say something to you and me? And I want you to know that here, a pastor who knows lots of people, has lots of Christian friends, my communion is my home group. We have it on campus, off campus, D groups, all the things you're doing. That's not just an activity so Bill can have something to do with his time. That's because there's a need within your life and my life for community. And Apostle Paul, we follow him through. Everywhere he went, he got with a group of people. Do you have someone that would kneel with you on a beach like they did, kids and everybody, and pray for your life? Well, I want you to know you're missing. You're missing the dynamic that God intended for his church, which is communion. And I would say to you, this service is over. There ought to be a line asking your pastor here, get me in a group. Get me in a fellowship. I need it in my life every day. But then lastly, the Apostle Paul was a guy. Now this is very important to you. He was always building bridges. Now listen to this phrase. Because it's going to stand against my first phrase. By appropriate compromise. You say, well wait a minute Gary. I thought we were supposed to be people of conviction. And we stand on our conviction. We never compromise one little bit of it. Well, I want to remind you, if you were to go back to Acts chapter 16, the Apostle Paul said to Timothy, Timothy, you're a Greek. We're getting ready to go see some Jews. They won't receive us unless you've been circumcised. You go be circumcised so we can go touch these people. Now, what was going on right here? Was Paul violating something? No, he didn't believe circumcision saved you. 
He believed like in the Old Testament, it was a picture of the peeling away of sin and all that God was doing as a, for the nation Israel and what he was doing. He thought circumcision was an option you could do or not do. But he asked Timothy to go be circumcised so that they could be able to relate to some people. A meaningful bridge building appropriate compromise. Let's look at this text right here, beginning in verse number 23. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men, purify yourself along with them, pay their expenses. Oh boy, it's going to cost him. So they may have their heads shaved. Thus we will all know that there's nothing in what they've been told about you, but do you yourself live in observance of the law? But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent them a letter and telling them to stain from what's been sacrificed to idols, from blood and sexual immorality. So what did Paul do? He took the men. The next day, he purified himself along with them, went to the temple, giving notice with them for the purification would be filled and offering a something, uh, offering to be presented for each one of them. Now, what was going on right here? In the Jewish faith, you had what was called a Nazarene vow. Included the shaving of the head. Included the giving of an offering. It was all done to honor God. And Paul was being accused of some things about his faith and how he felt about the law of Moses. Well, that vow was not something that in any way caused him to live in disobedience to God. It was a vow of commitment, a vow of purity. And so he said, listen, I'll participate with that. And what you find is a guy who's willing to make appropriate compromises so that he can build bridges of relationships with people. And I want to say to you, where, where in your life are you moving out from your life and the way you live your life to build relationships with people different from you that make mean that you are involved in some things that are not sinful, but things that you do to build relationships with them. Things you do because you care about them. Things you do because you want to build a relationship with them so that you could bring them to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to know, between conviction and compromise, whoa, there's a big gulf. And I'm not going to answer all those questions, okay? I'm just saying we ought to be people of conviction. We ought to be also people who are constantly reaching out to neighbors and friends and loved ones, building relationships with them, finding a place of compromise so that we can have a relationship with someone like that. Uh, let me tell you what's happened in my life. Uh, I play golf every Tuesday and Thursday when I'm in town. And with a group of guys, there's about 10 of us that play. And we mess around different golf courses and have a lot of fun. We never stopped during COVID. We had a great time doing it. But one of the guys invited his lost neighbor. His name's Guido. He is from the Netherlands. And a guy doesn't know Jesus. And so we, we brought him into our group. And, uh, you know, now you know, there's sometimes his language is different from ours. And it's not because it's Dutch, okay? And uh, sometimes when we finish, he doesn't drink a Diet Coke, okay? And we go, wait, wait, hey, you're going to sit down with us. You get that stuff out of here, you know? No, we don't do that. We're here to build a relationship with Guido. We want to share Jesus with him, and we have shared Jesus with him. So one day I was riding with Guido and we got to talking about his life. His wife has MS and what's going on with her. And I said, what do you do for recreation other than golf? He said, well, I, 
I play nine ball, a pool game. And he said, I'm actually in a league. Every Monday night I go, there's about 10 or 12 teams in the league. And we go to a place, it, it, it's, a, it's a, a kind of a pub, all right? It's got drinking and those kind of things in there, but it's got 10 or 12 pool tables. And, and you need to know, I grew up, I grew up in my town, my family, we had a pool table. So I grew up shooting pool. In fact, my brother and I, we play a game that's a British game called snooker that my brother and I grew up playing together. And, and uh, we do that all the time when we would get together. And I said, hey, Guido, where do you play? He told me. Well, I told Sandy, I said, hey, I want a relationship with Guido. So that Monday night, I headed over to the pub. Let me say that one more time. See, I don't have to have a job here. <laughs> I headed over to the pub. And I sat down in that room and, and the 10 tables and folks were playing. Guido was there and I ordered my sandwich and got my Diet Coke and watching him play. He was just shocked. What are you doing? There wasn't anything evil going on in that place. I wouldn't do anything evil. I was there to build a relationship with Guido. By the way, he's an incredible pool player. Okay? It gave us something to talk about, but it changed our relationship. He said, you know, I kind of realized you wasn't just a guy who wanted to tell me about your religion. That you might be a guy who cares a little bit about my life. What are you doing? You're building bridges of appropriate compromise. That isn't the place I want to go to on a regular basis. Okay? But I want you to know, I was glad to be there with my friend, build a relationship with him. That's what the Apostle Paul did. He had convictions. Wouldn't violate those convictions. But he found some appropriate places to build bridges of compromise. And why in the world do you do stuff like that? He did it for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because his main goal was not to shut down every pub in Texas. His goal was people would see Jesus, hear about Jesus. So shave my head, circumcise my buddy Timothy. I'll pay the way for their vows. I'll go through this ritual with him. I'll do whatever that takes because I'm not compromising my faith. But I do it so my countrymen can know about the Jesus that I've come to love and appreciate. Your challenge, church has challenged you to win two people to Christ this year. I want to tell you something. You're not going to do it because you share with Him all the things you believe. You want them to fit where you fit. It's going to start with the courage, not only of conviction. But building bridges, appropriate bridges of appropriate compromise to bring them to faith. Why do we do that? So we have more people in this room? No. So people can hear the gospel. And we can gain a hearing for the gospel. Because we're willing in appropriate circumstances to make appropriate compromises. So we can build relationship with them. Bow your head, please, with me for a moment, would you? Let me just uh, simply ask you this morning, in either of these rooms, do you see today that this church is about Jesus and the gospel? All that we do and everything we go about 
is so you can hear that Jesus Christ is God's Son, came to this earth, lived a sinless life, died on a cross for the forgiveness of our sin, rose from the dead, and is coming back real soon. You need to know that's our message. It's not all these issues out here in this world while we're going to take stands, yes. Courageous stands. But the main issue is would you open your heart and allow Jesus to come live within you? In doing so, be forgiven of your sin and have a relationship with an eternal God. And when you die, go to heaven. Not because of how good you are, but because of Jesus being in your life. In a moment, we're going to stand and sing. And as we do that, and Andy leads us, we're going to say, come to the altar. If you want a relationship with Christ, you want to talk with someone about this church, maybe you want to come and just pray about your witness in those places where you need to build a bridge or those places where you need a courageous conviction to be lived out. Father, take these moments. Take these moments. They belong to you. Speak to our hearts today, God. Speak to our hearts. Because God, you're the persuader, not me, not this choir, not Andy, not anybody in this room. It must be you. You persuade for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.